All right, everybody, uh, here we are with another edition of uh, Conversations with Dr. Cowan and Friends. And I must admit, Curtis, Curtis Stone, uh, is uh, who I'm talking with today. And I understand that Curtis has heard of me for a while, but I must say I hadn't heard of Curtis, so he's a new friend. Um, uh, but what I did learn in the last week made me very excited to talk to him. I think mostly because I have a lot of questions that I think he has very specific and clear, and I actually think uh, more affordable answers than what I might have done otherwise. And anybody who has those kind of things who knows more about gardening than I do, of which there's a lot of people out there in that category, I am happy to talk to. So uh, <laughs> I don't know your whole background. So maybe if, unless you heard something that you didn't agree with what I just said, I would love to just, if you could introduce yourself to our audience and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. Um, yeah, big fan of your work. And uh, yeah, people know me as the urban farmer. That's my book there. I wrote that six or seven years ago and i built a farming business as sort of a landless individual who didn't have any money <clears throat> so i i was i've been uh kind of a prepper for a long time i uh had a background in music composition and i was a, a gigging musician in montreal and i started to really pay attention to geopolitical issues uh in kind of like the mid-2000s and i was really concerned about the shit hitting the fan in 2008 basically and um, I wanted to get into, you know, I was looking at, you know, what did I have? What did I have as resources and what could I do if the shit did hit the fan? Uh, we're obviously in that scenario now. Uh, it's come 10 years later than I thought originally. But but I at that point, I decided to get out of Montreal and start planning to do something. And so I went on a little bit of a, a woofing tour. Woofing is, a, is an acronym for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. And I I toured around uh, the West coast of the U S I rode my bike from Kelowna, which I'm just four hours inland from Vancouver. I rode all the way to down to Tijuana and I visited organic farms and homesteaders off, off critters and stuff like that. And I so got inspired like, and uh, go ahead. Curtis, can I, so is am I understanding correctly that you, you had no farming experience. You were None. not an expert gardener by any means. Zero, zero, zero experience. I grew up in the suburbs uh, with, with away from gardening and I, then I lived in the big city of Montreal for 10 years, uh, completely an urban hipster. <laughs> Didn't know anything about growing food. So you I had been fascinated about it, but yeah. Yeah. So you basically just knew, I got to figure out how to get food. <laughs> and well, you know, you know what happened to me, Tom, is that I, I witnessed uh, in one, in, I think it was February or March in 2008, we had a crazy freezing rainstorm in Montreal. And are you from New York originally or from the East Coast? You, you ever experienced that? Detroit and then upstate New York and then New Yeah, Vancouver. so you get, you've seen the, you've seen that weather. You get these warm fronts that come in when it's very cold and then everything freezes. Yeah. So I saw that and I, I went to the grocery store one day sliding around, falling on my ass. And I went to the store and it was like maybe a third of the stuff in the store. And I, at that, at that moment, it clicked for me like, man, is our system fragile in that if the trucks don't come into the city, we're screwed. And I, at that point, I really started researching uh, supply chains and, and, and food. I became obsessed with permaculture. I decided to leave Montreal. I'll try to make this story as short as possible. 
I decided to leave Montreal because I realized if the shit were to hit the fan and people were to starve, I would most likely be food because, because that I had no skills that really had intrinsic value to anybody. And that kind of terrified me. And so I started a journey where I just said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to teach myself how to grow food. I didn't know that it would be commercial farming. I, at first it was just, I thought I could go tree planting for years, which I did to support my music career. I'd go planting trees in British Columbia and make, you know, 20 grand and then go back. And I thought I could do that for five years and save some money to buy land and then start that way. That was my original plan just to be like a total back to lander. But that just had a lot of flaws in that plan. It didn't really work out. And I realized, well, maybe I should make money growing food somehow. And then the challenge was, well, how do I, how do I grow food if I can't buy land? And I learned about farmers that farmed on leased land. And, uh, and, uh, I, I, um, I was still in Montreal. Um, but then I, I actually, right. It was about a month that I started to learn this. I moved, I moved back to BC. I quit my band. I quit. I left everything behind me and I went to BC. I did another big season of tree planting and saved some money. And then I, um, I started this British Columbia, British Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the West coast of Canada. And, uh, and at that point I basically just started researching. I started reading books and watching YouTube videos. YouTube was a lot different then. there wasn't nearly as many content creators as there's now, like not even close. Yeah. And then I, I, I got on my bike and I did this bike tour. I rode my pedal bike down the whole coast all the way to Tijuana and I just visited farms and I got kind of inspired by what people were doing, but I was more inspired by my ability to just like do something. Like I rode a bike 3000 miles and and you literally got on a bicycle and rode from British Columbia to Tijuana. Yep. All the way down the West coast. You know, I, I went straight from Kelowna, which is four hours East of Vancouver. I went straight down and hit the Columbia river at the border of Washington and Oregon. Yeah. straight through Portland, Lincoln city, and then took the, the, the one, the entire way to Tijuana. Wow. And I just, you know, it, 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 I didn't really learn much about farming there, but I learned that the human spirit is incredibly powerful wow. uh, because I just felt so empowered. You know, I'd spent three months on that trip visiting places and I stayed in some places for two weeks. And by the time I got to Tijuana, I was just super motivated to do something because I felt like at that point I could do anything. I was so physically fit and I just felt incredible. And, and then I just really started to get into this whole idea of urban farming of basically leasing or renting people's backyards and then building a business out of it. And I, and I didn't know, I didn't have really high expectations at that point. I just thought, Hey, you know what, if I could make 20 grand a year doing this, I could live off that. I could at least build some skills and work towards my dream of buying land and being, you know, kind of where we are. Both of us are in that situation right now where we're on large acreage. Uh, but it took me so long to get there, but I figured, Hey, let's just get started because I might not have money. My parents had no money. I still had a bunch of student debt at the time, but I started and the business worked. Like I made money my first year of farming. I made 20 grand my first year of farming. Hang on, and then I doubled that the next year and, let, let, let me stop there for a minute, because I think there's an interesting point you make, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, I, the possibility of doing this, it sounds like actually like literally started with you getting healthier in better shape. That was the... It, it, you know the what? That's, as, you as a doctor, you bring up a really interesting point that I had actually never thought about that, but that's actually very true. Yeah. You did you you it wasn't that you had an intellectual idea, you may have had that as well, 
but you actually had the experience in your body that I can actually do something <laughs> because yeah, I have some not, energy no, and my muscles are strong. And oh, actually- man, I mean, I, I would say it was a physical and spiritual fortitude that motivated me to do something. And even at that point, I wasn't even exactly sure what it was. Like, I remember being, I was staying at this, this hostel in San Diego and I stayed there for about a, five days. Cause I was, I just kind of wanted to unpack the trip and I, I met some nice people down there and I was having fun in San Diego and in, in ocean beach there. And, and it was kind of cool. And I just was like, cause originally I wanted to ride all the way to new Orleans to volunteer in the relief effort for the hurricane. That was my original plan. Um, but then I met a lot of people in California that said, don't drive through Texas. They'll kill you. You know, you're a hippie Canadian with spandex and a plaid shirt. <laughs> and so I, but I was, it wasn't fear that stopped me. It was just like, well, you know, I'm here now. I feel incredibly motivated. I felt I, I kind of came out of my shell that way. I've always been somewhat extroverted, but when I did that trip, traveling by yourself, rolling up to these campsites every night, you just, I just met people all the time. Every day I'd meet like 10 people that were just incredible and, and really living life by the hilt. And uh, I was inspired by that. But yeah, you're right. It was, it was that physical fortitude of health, cycling, you know, 60, 70, 80 miles a day, um, eating well, um, and, uh, and then just feeling like, man, I could do anything I put my mind to. And then that's what really motivated me too, because I thought I'll come back to BC and I'll just start this. I don't know if this is exactly it, but I know that I can do it. Cause so like, the, I got to get what's to, the, this that you started then give us. So break yeah. Down. So what I started at that point was I came back and I, I heard about a guy named um, Paul Hefner Hummy, who was a, a young man around my age at the time. And uh, I was 28 when I started this, I'm 41 now. And, um, and uh, he was doing this urban farm. He was leasing out people's front and backyards and he was doing it all by bicycle. And I was super inspired by him. I saw, I saw stuff of him online. The internet was a very different space back then. It was just, it wasn't nearly as much content. You had to really dig and search to find things. And I just phoned him. I found his phone number and I just called him. And I was like, Hey man, I love what you're doing. You know, uh, can I ask you a few questions? And he was really nice. And he gave me a lot of his time. And, and I basically started my business right with that. And then I, I there was another guy named Wally Satsowich in Saskatoon, Canada who was doing a similar thing on a bit larger scale, but he was urban farming and uh, he kind of took me under his, his wing as a, as a mentee actually for a little while. And I just did it. And I, so I, I basically, I leased out, I started with three yards. So one was like a double lot. It was like a 2000 square foot front yard, 2000 square foot backyard. And people lived in the house. They rented it. And basically I had a deal with the owner that I could use their land because they had these renters there and I could build a home base. They had a garage there that I rented for 400 bucks a month. I put my walk-in cooler in there, my tools in there. I had access to water. They said, okay, you look after our property. You, you, you maintain the edge, you build a fence for us, which they paid for, do some nice upgrades to their property. Um, we'll, we'll let you do it for free. Basically I, I paid them for the garage, but they'll let me use the land. I just gave them vegetables each week. And so I built a business doing that. And then the word got out, like the local newspaper talked about it. And then all of a sudden I had 10 lots because everybody's like, Hey, you can turn my yard into a garden. And if you bring me vegetables each week, have at it, you know, you can use the water for free. And sooner or later, I had a really strong business out of that. It it grew, you know, over the course of the 10 years that I ran the business, 
it grew in different incarnations. You know, I had, I, I probably leased over 20 different lots at that time. I even had a two acre lease. I had a crew. I had yeah, up to four people working for me. As a, as a long time gardener, I'm, my next question is, so how did you do this? Did you do it like, uh, you know, double dip dog beds with a, a spade and a fork? Did you use a rototiller? Did you? Uh, well, actually, it's funny you say double dug because literally that's what I did when I started the John Jevons technique, John which Jevons. is an absolute backbreaker. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah, realized I that was myself. Oh yeah, like I I I remember it, that that was my original um, intent when I started was to follow the biointensive uh, method from John Jevons and I but I did everything in thirty inch beds, not four foot beds like he does. He does the double wide beds. Yeah. Um. So Why I did, did the thirty. Why thirty? Well, because they're thirty inch beds are more ergonomic. You know, like you know, basically you can see right there. So like a thirty inch bed you can straddle over a 30 inch bed. It's more ergonomic. You can get in and out of the plot easier. It's, um, it's just, it's, it's more workable from a, uh, let's see if I can show you. Like there were times where I actually did double wide beds, Yeah. but for the most part, I did everything in 30 inch beds. Uh, and there's other reasons for that too. Um, such as using machineries. There's, that was my front yard of my house. Um, but you know, it, it was just, it was more ergonomic that way. And then I eventually switched to using a, a BCS walk behind tractor. Yeah. And so I started rototilling um, and uh, you know, all so many things have changed in the lot in the last, in the 10 years that I did the business that so uh, all kinds keep, of tools. Yeah. We could talk about it for days. This. And for people who don't know, I I've often said the only gardening book I've ever read, it's a little bit of an exaggeration is how to Grow More Vegetables by John Jevons. By John Jevons, yeah. That's the best book I've ever seen. And, you know, the what we're talking about is the idea, his idea was you make four-foot-wide beds because that's approximately the length that you can reach to halfway. Yeah, it is. That's that's the correct, and that, that's correct. However, in a, in, a, in a home gardening context, that's not so bad that that but in a in a commercial context where you're working these beds in and out so what one thing that's different about the way when you run a business as a small farm than if you run a, a small homestead garden per se is that you need to rotate your beds multiple times to get production so like our farm at its at its pinnacle of its productivity was a quarter acre in size so we had 60 60 50 foot by 30 inch beds. And we made $110,000 of annual revenue Right. on yeah. that. The, you, the only way to do that is you have to rotate beds multiple times. And so it also comes down to crop selection. So doing it as a commercial enterprise and doing it as an enterprise for sustenance are totally different things. Yeah. I now have three different farms that I manage. Uh, one is sort of a co-op farm. That's the same style, but we don't rotate as much. Uh, and I have my home garden and, and raised beds. And then I have my acreage, which is more of a shit hit the fan garden type thing. So they're different, but I've, I've explored all these different contexts and, and commercial is just very different. Yeah. So it, it, it all depends on what one wants to do. Right. And, and again, let me just try to describe this and see if you, if this is your understanding, what you're talking about is Jevons, whole point was you never let a bad be unproductive. Empty. 
That's right. Or unproductive. Yeah. So literally you organize yourself so that, you know, there's a, uh, this whatever wide bed of, of cabbage or, or mosh or greens. And literally the day that comes out, it gets reworked. And then the new seedlings, which were started four to six weeks ago, that's they right. go into that bed or the carrots get seeded in the bed. Yeah. And there's not a day that, you know, you, you get good at the timing of it. That's right. You know, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that, that, that all those principles are, are super part of, so like here, for example, here's one of our urban plots and yeah, it was the exact same idea with Jevons is that a crop would come out. So you'd harvest that crop, you'd pull it out, you'd return the bed, you'd amend it with compost and plant it immediately. That's how, so that means like for us, even in our, we're a zone 6B here in Kelowna, British Columbia. So we're fairly warm for Canada and it's quite sunny for eight months of the year. Each of these beds would get rotated 40, uh, four times a year in a growing season. And, and so when you say rotated, you mean replanted. Basically. Replanted. Yeah. So there would be four different crops in those beds throughout a growing season. So like for us, that's an eight month, maybe 10 months if you're using greenhouses, but, but the, 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 the economics of it are, is that we could make $1,600 of uh, revenue from a crop on a 50 foot bed. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, but, but, but really it comes down to what, how we were so successful at it was that we would just grow high value crops. So quick growing, what I call, um, high rotation crops. That's what I refer to them in my book is that they have sort of five characteristics. There's short days to maturity. So 60 days or less. And again, this is all commercial context for homestead and it's totally different. Short days to maturity, long seasonality, meaning that you can grow that crop in at least three seasons of the year. Um, uh, It has a a high density per square foot. So you can pack a lot in a small space, has a high yield per square foot. And has a um, uh, what was the other characteristic? Oh, I forget. But I would <laughs> basically, say they have this collection of characters. Is people like to buy it? That's exactly it. Sorry, that's it right there. Popularity. Those those yeah. are my five criteria. I call the crop value rating system. So in my right. book, I just basically said if you want to determine how much money you can make on a plot of land check yourself a yes or no on each of those characteristics. Yes. Can it grow in 60 days or less? Yes or no. Uh, yes or no. Can it grow uh, three months, uh, three seasons of the year? Uh, is it popular? Yes or no. High density per square foot, high yield or high price, high, high density per square foot, and then high, a uh, high uh, dollar value per pound. So if you score, what I always say is that if you want to be on a quarter acre or less and you want to make $100,000 a year farming, it's possible in Canada or the U.S., in U.S. or Canadian dollars. But you need to only grow crops that have a five CVR on every crop characteristic. You go to a half acre, you can grow crops that have three or four of those characteristics. So, Because the larger you scale, the more you need to diversify. Because one, one thing that I didn't, uh, a caveat that I didn't mention is that with this kind of farming, it's all direct consumer marketing. Uh-huh. None of it is, well, some of it can be selling through a distributor or a grocery store, but for the most part, you're selling directly to the end user through uh, CSAs, community supported agriculture programs, farmers markets, or restaurants. And uh, uh, now, 
so let's switch a little bit to because most of I think the listeners are going to be the home gardener types. So yes, the difference then is so you would never grow like a butternut squash in this no. system because that takes you know too long days takes too and- long too much space too low uh, it's two dollars a pound um, it has a, a very low density you can only plant them at the most every eighteen inches. Yeah. Uh, low yield per square foot. So n- no, you wouldn't do that kind of crop. What we're talking about is leafy greens, direct seeded, high density leafy greens, arugula, spinach, lettuces, so not uh, even mustard greens. Not even transplants. No, we do transplants. You know, our lettuce was all transplanted because we could just get it so much earlier. We, we used a tool called the paper pot transplanter. And uh, th- that really accelerated our production because we could have, we could basically doing that we could have a crop a new crop every 30 days in the same bed because you transplant it like you said earlier four weeks in boom you're harvesting that in 21 days even even 15 days in the summertime so just to be clear it's not that either one of us have anything against butternut squash right Mm -mm. i mean it's it's good food well and well let let me tell you about a bit about my context right now that's that's different is I started a, a, a recent farm right at the beginning of the year. I, I saw the shit hitting the fan uh, in, in late January. I was trying to fly to the U.S. and I got t- totally turned around by TSA, held there for nine hours. I saw fear in the Seattle airport. And I saw, I, and I've always been a guy who sees through the propaganda and the, and the bullshit. I saw this whole thing playing out. My wife and I started prepping immediately. I mean, we've always been kind of preppers, but we really started taking it seriously. At that point, we still hadn't, been on acreage you know where i'm broadcasting from here is i'm, I'm in my urban home in Kelowna, uh, which is a quarter acre you know suburban peri-urban lot we grow a ton of food here uh but we didn't have a lot of land security for really growing food because if you want to grow for say a family of four you need at least a half acre yeah because we want to grow squash and potatoes and things like that right you can't live right. off leafy so greens. let's go through that how do you do that and what do you how do you grow? do that so- what what do you use what well you you can do it all by hand if if you want certainly having a a rototiller um at least to start to break ground makes it a lot easier so what we do now is we have three kind of farms we have our urban homestead here in Kelowna and then we have a leased farm that we we run as a co-op farm with five other members and we lease a half acre uh just about a 10 minute drive from where we are here and we grow on that with a bunch of people. And then we also have our acreage, which we're in the middle of developing. It's going to take a year to really get it going. But on that half acre, we grow so much food on there. And, and in fact, a half acre, if you know what you're doing, if, if, you have, if you have experience like I do, a half acre can actually feed about 20 or more people yeah. um, because, because if you rotate things properly yeah, and, right. and there's, there's really passive ways to do things. But on that farm, we're growing everything, potatoes, winter squash, onions, leeks, greens, and all that other stuff too. Tomatoes, we had a whole greenhouse of tomatoes. Every, every vegetable that you can grow in Canada, we're growing there. And even right now, we're, there's snow on the ground. We have four 50 foot by 17 uh, and a half feet wide uh, greenhouses up there that are unheated. And we have celery, spinach, lettuce, carrots, beets, turnips, uh, radishes, uh, all winter, and we can keep those in the ground at sub-zero temperatures all winter, okay, and they survive. Curtis, now I'm going to pin you down here. So here I have my 
half acre field and it's sort of grass or brush hog stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and I want like name dates and serial numbers. Right. Yeah. I okay. Want, so I mean, what do you do? What, what equipment do you get? What, you know, I'm not going to do all this by hand with a broad fork. No, so, no. So if you're going from raw, like uh, where, where, whereabouts are you now? Let's, let's just say Northeast United States. Okay. So Northeast United States, you know, I, I, I'm very familiar with it out there. You get half acre flatland. Uh, is 30 it years ago? They used to grow corn on. Right. So it's all, is it full of like invasives and, yeah. and brush and stuff brush. like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing you can do is rent a brush, a, a brush hog. I think they're called You said it. Basically it's an implement that goes on the front of a, uh, skid steer and it just it's uh what else do they call them they, they basically just it just it's a mulcher it just mashes up everything you can drive it right into even trees that are like 10 inches wide and you can just mow the hell out of that Got it. uh so you're gonna have to basically break through all that stuff mulch it up and then you're gonna go in and remove stumps so you're gonna no stumps. You, you, it's a field Okay, it's a field. So yeah, you just mow it down. Mow it down. Um, you know, mow what, it down. What do you use to, to rototill it? Because I, I looked well, on your site and you had an amazing looking rototiller. At yeah, Park. a BCS. I, I would actually start with a tractor and I would just, I would hire somebody in your area to come and do it. So I would first do a flail mowing uh, and not just a mowing because a flail mower is a machine that will mow but mulch at the same time. Yeah. Whereas if you just mow with a with a centrifugal um, one, you're just going to cut and you'll still have long strands of grass, and then you can't rototill that; it'll be a mess. Yeah. So you flail mow it, which is a machine that flails and and it rips and mulches. Flail mow everything, then you could come in with a with a tractor based 76 inch wide rototiller, and just till till that field really good. I mean, I wouldn't do this right now in fall because you'll just erode all your soil and the precipitation coming. Um, this is something you would do in the summer to prepare. It depends where you want to start basically. Cause there's kind of paths that you can go depending on all those, those things. But so let's say if you I, do if, it in this, when the ground is workable in the spring, in the spring. Yeah. So you could do what I said, you flail mow it, till it and then from there I, I, i'm actually having i'm a guy who's visited hundreds of farms in around the world i've had that privilege to travel and, and and visit farms and gardeners all around the world and um i still am to this day a fan of the 30 inch bed system i think it's the most practical way to garden i do not like john jevons double reach beds they kill your back um and it it it, it it's not practical for access. Kids always end up walking on them because there's less paths. So it's, yes, it's a little bit less efficient of a use of the use of land, but you, you get more access and it's, it's easier to maintain. And so I would do a 30 inch bed. I'd basically blast up everything with a, with a commercial, you know, tractor based tiller to do the initial break. Then I would take a machine like a, like a BCS walk behind tractor, which is what I use. I still use okay, it. Tell day, us even about in my... that machine. I was... Yeah. So that, that machine is, I'll, I can show you a picture here in my book. Um, the, the one I had in this book is old. I've got a lot newer of a one now, but basically it's um, the beauty of these machines is that they're like a tractor in that they have a PTO. 
and you can change the rear implement. So you can drive them forward and put like a flail mower on the front of it, turn the handlebars around and drive it this way. Or you can flip the handlebars around and put a tiller on the back and use it for tilling. So that's what we used. And so um, what I would do, and I'm actually doing it there in a way, is I would till the whole ground and then I would come in with the, 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 this tiller and you walk next to it and basically run straight lines, run a string line on the dimensions that you want your land to be, rototill, walk next to it, and your foot paths will make the walkways. And you could do a 12-inch or an 18-inch path, whatever suits you. My new farm, I do 18-inch paths just because so everybody has kids. On the bed, you're walking beside it? And yeah, basically you're walking beside it. Yeah, and so going, so at this point, everything, those beds are now going to be permanent. And you're never going to walk on those beds. Right. So it, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of a permanent raised bed structure. And then that way you're going to rebuild your soil. Cause you've obviously done a lot of microbial damage to the soil by tilling it. That's kind of just part of it to get things going. You build, rebuild from there. Once everything's kind of logistically placed out, now you bring in your compost. And then from there, we only do shallow cultivation. We, I only, if I till, which I still do till, but I only till the top inch and a half, two inches of the soil. So you can, so let me, I, I just want to be so precise on what we're talking about here because I'm so interested in it. So it sounds like the, the width of this is, is this sort of, the bed is an up and back, right? So it's, yes. so it's up one side, that's the path on one side, back on the other side, that's a 30 inch wide bed with two 12 to 18 inch paths. Uh, well, one, 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 like a bed and yeah. a path, a, a bed, bed and a path. Bed and yeah. A yeah. Now, that's a, a, a sort of deep till the first one. Yeah. And a they, deep till on the first one that, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, there's people out there that would debate that, but, but I, I, I don't have a, I'm not dogmatic with anything. I just look at what works and I, right. because I leased farms and I, and I've been around the world, I've seen so many different types of land and soil and conditions that I just think for the most part, rototilling initially makes a lot of sense. Yeah, just gets I, you in there. Gets you going. You know? Yeah. You know, and, and just trust me, um, Curtis, you don't have to defend yourself because I know, you know what you're talking about here. Right. I'm fair enough. Trying to yeah. get it. So, so you deep till it. And then you, if it's now, you let it sit until spring. If it's spring, then you put compost on it and plant it in this way. If you're doing essentially yeah. for money for this, this five uh, things, if you're doing it for this, because you want your 20 people to eat from this half acre, you yeah. plant it in carrots and beets and potatoes and squash, and you have some beds that you rotate every Yep. I'm going to do you a little drawing to give you something really specific on what we did on this half acre is we, so our land up at, at our, at our co-op farm is a big, it's a big rectangle. Yeah. And, uh, it, uh, it faces the South. And what we did was we divided the land up into what I call bed blocks. And basically each block has a series of beds and so the, the land is sort of divided up like this. Yeah. Uh, ours has five blocks, but just, and so eat the, the, now we have a block of land here and then we have 12 beds, 30 inches, 18 inch walkway, 30 inch bed, 18 inch walkway. And then another series of beds. And each block is broken up by an eight foot path. 
And that allows access, uh, which is important, especially when you're cleaning things out, you're doing a big harvest. It's nice to have access points. So you can even drive a truck in, load stuff onto the truck, dump compost, whatever it is. So we always have our, 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 our farm and, and all the market gardens I visited around the world, the best ones always do that. Everything is in a, a standardized block. And then, yeah. then you have blocks from there. So it's and either a 10-bed block or a 12-bed block. And you got yep. big access. Okay. Now, I, and I want to be really hear your opinion on this because I think I did and I just want to be sure. Now, let's say you grow um, bok choy in one of these. Uh, you've got 30 foot by... 30 inch beds, right? 30 foot by 30 inch beds, you grow bok choy and that ends in in June 1st, right? So now you've got all of June, July, August to grow butternut squash. What do you do? What the, so here's the day you cut the bok choy. What do you do that? Do you, do you put bone meal? Do you put compost? Do you lightly uh, rototill it? Do you just yeah. take it out and what, what do you do? All, all, all of the above. Well, well, what I do is I only apply compost once a year. So at the beginning of the season, uh, what we do is we buy for this farm, we bought 24 yard, uh, uh, imperial yards of compost. And so that gave us enough to apply two inches to each bed. And that's another advantage of the bed system is you're not just broadcasting compost yeah. all over and walking on it. You're only using it on the beds. And so we put, we bring in, uh, and that was for, you know, next year we'll probably just put an inch, but anyways, you bring in, uh, compost and put it over every bed. Then a wheelbarrow and a shovel. Yeah. Wheelbarrows or buckets. Actually, I find five gallon buckets better. You know, you get, we, we get a, a big truck that dumped a 24 yard pile. Then we used just, we had a small Toyota Tacoma, we go and we fill five yard buckets of, of compost, like 20 buckets or more at a time, drive that over to each block. And then wow. each of us can hand bomb each one. I find it's faster than wheelbarrowing. It's a bit tougher on the body, but it's good exercise. And so yeah. we basically apply compost across the board. Then what we, so that, 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 that could take two days of work really. Yeah. Um, and that's done in like early for us. Like, and that's, um, that would happen in, March say, and we're not really planting anything at that time. Maybe we could in the greenhouses, but you know, we basically lay all the compost down. Then we use what are called silage tarps, which are incredible. I I'm a complete fan of, of using silage tarps and, and, and doing passive letting nature or the, 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 the anaerobic or aerobic breakdown of things happen quicker. So, but they also, it's also a technique called stale, uh, stale seed bedding. So, Basically, you know, you've probably seen it happen in a garden. You leave a a tarp down or something and then a bunch of grass dies underneath it, right? Because it can't get oxygen or light. So what we do is, but it actually doesn't hurt the microbes. Not that I've seen. So we, we compost everything. We shape our beds. Yeah. We run a tiller, whatever. Then we tarp it the, uh, and we wet them. And usually in the spring, just let it get rained on for a couple of days. Then we tarp everything. Now what's going to happen is any of the weed seeds that are in there are going to germinate and they're going to die. And so... Wait, so till it how deep? Uh, well, it's when you're first shaping right. the plot from raw, you till deep. Okay. But next year, when I go and prepare the beds again, I'm only going to do shallow cultivation. We will broad fork the beds once every foot. We broad fork, and then I'll do a shallow. We'll, we'll apply comp. Oh no, I'll do a shallow cultivation with the tiller, just like an inch deep. 
then at that point, I'll also mix in some fertilizer. I'll put in some, um, I use a composted turkey manure. It's a, it's a four, six, four. It's a certified organic turkey manure. Basically that's a, a nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, basic fertilizer. Put that in, till that in shallow, then apply compost and just rake the compost even on the top of the bed. And that just sits like a layer of mulch on the bed. And we plant from there directly into that. But at that point, we water everything and tarp it. And then we only untarp the areas that are going to plant right away. So some of our farm stays tarped until like mid-June. And what, do you, so what some, kind of tarp do you use? They're called silage tarps. You know, when you drive out in the country and you see um, all those bales of hay wrapped in, in that white tarp, white stuff, yeah. they're black on the inside and white on the outside. It's that stuff. They're, it's called silage, silage tarps. You can buy them at any farm supply place has them. And I, I buy them in 40, no, I buy them uh, 25 feet wide by, well, hundreds of feet, but I cut them to be, to fit on, I can take two tarps to cover one of our blocks. And so every block at our farm is uh, 12 beds, 50 feet long, and two tarps can cover that entire block. And so the whole farm in March is basically covered in tarps for a few weeks until we uncover the first area that's going to get planted. And then, so that way, no soil is exposed to weed seeds blowing in, rain falling down, um, or the sun beating down on it until it's ready to plant. And so it's similar to John Jevons. John Jevons doesn't use tarps. This is sort of a new thing in market gardening that, that people like myself and a few other guys sort of doing. And it just means that your soil is always like a loaded rifle. Yeah. It's like, it's been sitting under that tarp for a few weeks, sometimes a few months. You open it up, there's no weeds. And then you plant and then you got clean soil with no weeds. Very little time is spent weeding. Do you, so, so there, there, then you plant each block at, at a time. You don't uncover one bed from that block. No, we try, we try to be logistical. We try to, we try to kind of like fill up the farm. Yeah. Like we want to have a full block planted before we go into the next one. Got it. So we might start and just like uncover half of this block yeah. and then plant like some spring bok choy, a spring bed of uh, spinach, maybe half a bed of lettuce and half a bed of uh, arugula. And it depends what your context is and what you're growing for. Right. right. You don't, and, and with these 50 foot beds, like in a commercial context on a 50 foot bed, I'm always going to plant little monocultures. It's going to be a whole bed of one crop. Yeah. But in a homesteading context, it doesn't have to be that way. It can right. be whatever you like. The idea is if you're going to plant a bed, you want to make sure that if there is multiple species in that bed, that they all have a, the same date to maturity so that they all come out at the same time. The idea is that you want to be harvesting whatever's in this block. You want it to have an expected harvest date around the same time so that yeah. once it's done, you clean it out and then we tarp it again. And so I don't do, so in my, in my co-op farm, we don't do it like I did on my commercial farm. So my commercial farm bed got cleaned out, reprepped, immediately planted again. Yeah, right. What we do now is more lazy. So if we cropped out an area that was like a collection of some of those crops I mentioned, maybe some early crops, we get the last harvest from it. And then we just put a tarp right back over it in a month. You'll open that up. It'll all be gone. It'll be eaten by bugs and worms. And at that point, all we do then is just, sprinkle a little bit of fertilizer on there, mix it in with a rake and then plant it again. So you don't do the shallow tilling again. Then. Don't necessarily have to. The, if to. the tarp can sit on there long enough, like in upstate New York, 
same as in Eastern Ontario, Southern Quebec, it's the same thing where you get pretty warm days in the summertime. And, you know, even in May, if a tarp were to sit on there for three weeks, most of what was there would be decomposed because even early spring crops are all light crops. Like, you know, things like broccoli, cabbage, squash, even those things take a summer to grow and they take lots of daylight hours to grow all that carbon. That's a big, big thing. And what I do with those crops is I flail mow them. So I actually have a flail mower implement for my BCS. So like by, by mid July, we're already cropping out things like broccoli, cabbage, uh, some summer cabbage, broccolinis, uh, cauliflowers. We're even getting some of our potato crops, um, summer squash, even we're starting to harvest. But once those plants are cropped out, I put the flail mower on and I, I basically mulch them right on the bed. Right. On the then street. I tar- so th- this flail mower goes on the same basic tractor thing that you mm-hmm. just, whatever. Uh, Walk behind tractor. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And then it just mulch. It just grinds it right on the bed. Grinds it right on the bed. Wow. Yep. And it's beautiful because, uh, it just, it keeps all that organic residue in place. You know, you cut, co- and then you cover that up with a tarp. It's food for worms immediately. Right, and you'll, so- you'll literally see if, if you moisten it, like you flail mow it. I run the sprinklers on it for a couple hours, tarp it. You come back a week later, you're already going to see worms at the top of that soil, just devouring that stuff. Got and it. then they're shitting everywhere and leaving beautiful fertilizer for you. And then from there, you don't even need to till again. In fact, you don't want to, you can just do a rake, do a rake, you know, like level the bed out again with the rake, you know, cause I I like to re-fertilize a bit. Um, but you don't necessarily have to, it depends on how passive you want to be. You know, one thing I'm starting to think about more with where we're going in the world is we might be heading into times of scarcity. And if we are, you can't get Turkey manure fertilizer all the time. You got to make it. Right. And so basically the less inputs you have, the longer your cycles, the more inputs you have, the tighter cycles. That's why like with our commercial farm, I was able to rotate so quickly because I had access to these inputs that I could base. They're all certified organic inputs. They're all good for the soil. But when I have those inputs, I can tighten my growing cycles and just turn and burn. But in a, in a scarcity type scenario, you might realistically, if you didn't want to refertilize each time, you might really only get one or two cycles on a, on a bed per growing season. Right. So uh, now tell me more, th- this implement you're talking about, this tractor, you, you actually, you carry that on your site, right? And you can get it in the United States. Is that correct? Oh yeah. The, the company is called BCS. I don't even know what that stands for, but they're right out of Oregon. And then they have distributors all over the U S common, common machines. I, you know, I, I like, I really do think if you're going to be serious about gardening on a, on a larger scale, it's a fantastic machine to have. Uh, if you have raised beds though, it doesn't work. But at the same time, if you're doing raised beds with like, say a wood frame, like a wood box raised bed, um, you actually don't need to, uh, do the same amount of cultivation because raised beds like that don't settle in the same way. Cause my home garden here, I've got about a quarter minute. acre of you, you raised beds. It doesn't work on raised beds, but the, the, these 30 inch beds you're talking about, that works for that, right? Yeah, but there's no wooden frame around oh, those right. beds. They're just right. in the ground. Right. We they're they're raised in the sense that you never walk on them. Right. 
So every time you cultivate them, they fluff up a bit. And over time, they will settle next right. to the level of your, your walkways. Right. So then yeah. when you say it doesn't work on raised bed, you mean raised bed with, with wooden frames or borders or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like that's what my home garden here is, is, is wooden. Uh, I have custom uh, fur. They're just two, two by uh, two by 10 inch fur. And my beds here in my home garden are raised. And actually, I actually like it too. So it depends what you want to do, how much you want to put in. There's many ways to do these things, right? So it just, it just, it depends on how you want to do it. I mean, here in our urban home, we like the aesthetics of the raised beds. It's nice for kids because kids don't walk on the beds as much, you know? Right. Yeah. So what about, is, is there a difference if you, I, I'm trying to think of, in, in this, this uh, same machine has, it makes smooth beds, right? It sort of goes along and makes like a, a, a proper level seed bed. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I use, I actually invented the implement that BCS uses. It's called the PDR, the precision depth roller. It was my idea. And, and basically it's a, it's a roller. It's a steel roller that goes on the back of a rototiller and it allows you to, so it distributes the weight of the tiller and you can jack the tiller up really high so that you only do super, super shallow cultivation. Because right. deep tillage over time does degrade your soil. Like the science on that is quite clear. Yeah. Um, but minimal tillage is kind of the sweet spot. Because yeah. like you can go no till and just layer on mulch. There's lots of farms and gardens that do that. But it's super labor intensive. Yeah. So I think the happy medium is shallow cultivation. Right. Shallow. And then this makes a nice flat, nice seed bed. And then you're good. Yep. And you can run your implement. You can run your seeding tool in there. Because I, 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 you know, even... On my homesteading, I still use proper seeding tools like a Jang seeder. I use I use that, and I do precision seeding with 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 everything because it just you know hand seeding stuff. Like yeah, it's fine if you've got a few garden boxes and you're kind of just growing for fun. But if you want to actually grow a lot of food, you need to use some of the tools that commercial market gardeners are using. Yeah. So you don't. In other words. You don't want one seed six inches and then 12 inches and then nine inches. You want three inches, boom. You want slide. precision. Yeah. So, you know, I, t I use a Jang seeder. I think I, I'm sure I got an image of it here. I use a Jang seeder and I get absolute precision. So I can go and seed something like carrots and get a, a super, super accurate. So that, that image there right here down this one here i'm using a seed oh see it's kind of unfocused i'm i'm walking that seeding tool and it makes yeah. these perfect rows perfect and i get a carrot every inch perfectly Got it. and that way i don't have to thin them right it's just yeah. it just makes less work yeah less work all right and what do you put if anything in your compost pile or do you just um you just compost it right with this uh flail mower on the beds well, there's still, there, there's still organic residue that comes out of the farm. Like things I don't flail mow would be like winter squash because yeah. that stuff doesn't really get pulled out of the ground until late September, early October anyways. And, and it's a bit of a mess to flail mow because it grows everywhere. So that kind of stuff we pull out. Uh, potatoes we pull out entirely. Um, anything that's like small and like anything from say the size of a broccoli plant and down, I'll flail mow right on the bed. 
Yeah. Uh, tomatoes, we pull out because they're long and they'd be a pain in the butt to flail mow. Yeah. Um, so all the small crops, I flail mow and mulch right on the bed. Everything else gets put into the compost. Got it. And do you rotate, like you put tomatoes in the same bed year after year, or do you put them in different places? Ideally not, especially in a, in a scarcity type of, um, I'm actually in the middle of writing some stuff about how to do like sort of a, calling it like a lockdown victory garden. So, you know, if you're in a scarcity and you can't get access to resources, yeah, you want to re you want to rotate. If you have access to resource, market farms have been planting tomatoes in the same place over and over again. They do it through a technique called grafting. And it's big in upstate New York because so, it's so humid there in the spring and the summer that tomatoes are so prone to disease. And yeah. so what you do is you buy a disease-resistant F1. Yeah. It's a hybrid rootstock right. that you start from seed. So you basically have to start two tomatoes for every tomato plant. Yeah. You start a rootstock and then you start your top. And then you grow your rootstock to you know, four inches and then you slice it off with a razor blade and then you slice off your top and you splice it on there. Yeah. And then that way you can grow tomatoes in the same ground year after year after year. But in a, in a scarce economy, um, you wouldn't do that. You'd want to rotate. And that's why the use of uh, a greenhouse called a caterpillar tunnel is a game changer. Uh, it, like uh, a cheap form of infrastructure, like every, every market, every garden, every homestead garden that's serious. If, unless you're in California or Florida or a warm climate, you need greenhouses. And, uh, uh, uh the way to, to avoid disease problems over years is you move your greenhouse every year. So a caterpillar tunnel is basically just a single layer of poly with a basic bow. You can make these out of uh, chain link fencing top rail and, You'll hammer those ground posts in the ground, put a couple carriage bolts in the side, bake, make the frame. It's really straightforward. It doesn't have to be exact in the, the math, not in these complicated high tunnels. Simple greenhouse caterpillar tunnel that might co cover th uh, four 30-inch beds. You'll have tomatoes in that one year. And then next year, you'll move that greenhouse to another plot to put those tomatoes in. So you, you're, is, you're saying, because everybody seems to put the greenhouse as a, permanent structure and they just rotate and grow things you're not uh, thrilled with that well the way you could do it i mean the way we're going to do it up at our farm is we have four of these 50 foot caterpillar tunnels we did greenhouse we did tomatoes in one this year we'll do tomatoes in another one the next year so they're and they're permanent but you're just rotating the. Crop. well they're not permanent they, they they could easily be moved um and, and and we might have to do that because i don't even know if four years is enough time to really cycle tomatoes, it depends on your climate. You know, for us, we're in a dry, arid, high desert climate. It's very different than upstate New York. Yeah. And so um, in upstate New York, any climate where you have hu high humidity, you, you, you generally speaking have more soil uh, pest and disease uh, illness right. problems in the soil. You're more prone to it because that harbors bacteria and fungus, as you know. And so uh, it's better to, you, you want to be more strict about rotating in those kinds of climates than you do in dry climates. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice for the home? A guy's got a half an acre and he wants to put a quarter of an acre into fruit. Uh, yeah. What do you tell him? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of that here at home and I'm doing it up at my new homestead. Um, you know, grow things that are not like one of the top tips that I has ever given to from an orchardist is 
don't grow things that are common within uh, the orchards in your area. So I live in an area, I, I live in a massive uh, agricultural area for cherries and stone fruits. So the, we have cherries and apples are huge in my region. If I grow cherries or apples in my garden, they are going guaranteed. I'm going to get codling moth. And so one thing is look, I mean, it's kind of following the path of these resistance. I'm not saying you can't grow those things, but I would really look at things like plums and nectarines or things that aren't grown for agricultural purposes, you will have less pest problems just by nature. Now there's always ways around these problems. You know, if you have codling moth and you only have say five apple trees, you can buy a product in Canada, we call it a Kootenai bag. It's basically this wit, this big white cloth that you wrap around the tree. You let it, you let it flower. And then as soon as the flowers get pollinated and they, they start to form tiny little buds, then you wrap it because it's impollinated. You wrap it in this thing and leave it until you harvest and then you won't get codling moth. But um, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, grow. So taking all that into consideration, grow what you like and grow a balance of things. Like what we're, we're planning to do up at our homestead is we want proteins. And so I'm really interested in nuts, things like hazelnuts, uh, walnuts and uh, chestnuts because those are things that can give you proteins and, and different types of, uh, I'm not a nutritional expert by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I know the basics and I, I know what I like. And so it's important to grow things that you like and that you're actually going to use. Yeah. Got it. So that's an interesting, uh, advice because most people tell you when you go to a place, ask what everybody's growing because that probably is what's doing well. <laughs> you know what I find is most people are wrong. Yeah. Most people aren't doing the right things in general. I mean, you know this from health, like the whole system's a lie. Everything we've been told is a lie. And it's not that it's not like there's some grand conspiracy when it comes to gardening, though I do believe in grand conspiracies, but as far as gardening is concerned, um, it's just that we've lived in, we've lived in a world our entire lives. You and I are probably 20, 20 years apart, but we've probably lived our entire lives in this system which there's just stuff available all the time. And so we've been living in a context where we haven't had scarcity. And so we've been building homesteads and gardens based on stuff being available for the last 50 years, yeah. right? More than that. Ever, say at, at the, after the Great Depression in the United States, that's when we moved into the green revolution of agriculture, right? right? An abundance of stuff. And so our context has been shaped by available resources and that's going to change. Yeah. And so I think when it comes to gardening and homesteading, we have to always, I think it's so important right now to be thinking about scarcity. Yeah. You have access to this stuff right now, but if you look further into that, you might not in the future. Like one thing is phosphorus is a massive black swan. Phosphorus is available right now, but if you look at, the availability of phosphorus, it is very fragile. And it could be soon that nobody can get phosphorus fertilizer for their soil. So how do you, and what grow do you do your then? own phosphorus or how do you get your well, own? Well, John Jevons actually has some insights into that. Um, but um, a, a way to grow, a way to produce phosphorus is to grind up rocks. That's one thing that uh, 
people, you know, if people are thinking in a community, and it also depends on the type of soil you are. Like for us, west of the Cascades, phosphorus actually is, is, is in abundance in the soil. Phosphorus isn't so much of an issue for us here. Nitrogen is our biggest issue here and maybe potassium a bit. But um, so, you know, grinding up rocks, like literally making rock dust can, can make that stuff. And these are conversations that people need to start having is like, you know, how do we, co- how do we come together in, in small communities? Cause none of us can do this alone. If you, if you want to just be on the Hill doing it all by yourself, there's going to be challenges with that. I've always been a believer in community and looking at coming together with 20 people who maybe live in a, say a 20, 20 mile geographical region and saying, okay, what do we have that we can share when times get tough? And that might be something like that. Like maybe you can start a rock dust cooperative where people all pool in a a few thousand dollars to buy a machine that can grind up rocks, right? Things like that. Your rocks on the beds and put them in the trees, uh, in the wells around the trees and you're good. Yeah. 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 Because, because we don't all need those, that tool 24, seven, seven days a week. You, You only need that tool once a year. So this is where I think people can really start collaborating on what resources can we share, you know? Got it. Yeah. All right, Curtis. <laughs> so, yeah, I think our time is up here. I, you know, I, I am just really appreciative of having this chance to talk to you because I, I can tell you, I am going to do a lot of different things uh, in my garden that I was going to an hour and a half ago. No, right on. Uh, so that's, and I couldn't agree more, you know, we have to think about uh, what you can do by yourself, what you can do, find your community, the people who realize what's happening. And these 30 people, you don't all have to make beet kvass, you know, that's right. one person can, and then one person can grow apples and one person can raise chickens and one person knows how to fix tools and that's right that's how human beings live and if it we is we're community that, we're not getting anywhere that's it we're another way i like more. to think about it is like the zones of permaculture yeah. i don't know if you're familiar with that but it's I like every zone has its own sort of protocol and yeah. connections it's all a web right and right. you know it's the inner the, the zone zero that. is yeah what your body and then your homestead and then your acreage, and then your community, and then your greater community. And, and what are all those interaction points? And people really need to start thinking about that because I don't think, um, yeah. you know, I think we're going to run into some interesting times here. Great. Okay, Curtis. Good stuff. <laughs> Great to Thanks, talk Tom. to you. And, uh, yeah, my pleasure. We, we will be in touch. Absolutely. Okay, thank you.